The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story. It is an age of darkness, superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. This is Nightwatch, reporting from New York, Travis Marshall. Tonight, more on the news that has rocked Manhattan, if not the world. And welcome to our news section. Joining us is Corinne Charlebois, longtime fan and the artist of Gargoyles Issue 5 for SLG and Gargoyles Bad Guys. Hi, everyone. Hi. Hey. Hi. And, Hi. <laughs> and we also have my co-host, Jennifer L. Anderson on the line, partner in crime. Hello. And of Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hi. All right. So first, a very bit of, brief bit of NECA news. It was rapid fire. In the last few weeks, we had Armored Xanatos come out. We had Elisa Maza come out. And we had business suit David Xanatos come out. And Lexington is due out any time now. So... It's uh, they've really picked up the pace with the releases. It's, I love it. My wallet doesn't, but I do. <laughs> yeah. So um, before we come to Canada. <laughs> so, Jen, because you uh, had a few things to say at the beginning of the year, Elisa Maza, well, granted, she came out a little bit after Armored Xanatos about a week later, but technically our first quote unquote humanoid figure after a few things, things you had to say about that a few months ago. You happy? <laughs> they they teased Elisa on International Women's Day, and then we heard nothing forever, and I was uh, not happy with that. So, and then we were like, "Hey, Xanatos is coming out," and I was like, "Well." So I'm glad that that she squeaked out ahead of Xanatos. Mm-hmm. So and the figure I. is amazing. It's just gorgeous. It's a great right. figure. They've been doing a fantastic job in all of them, but this is our first human, so I was very curious to see how they did her, and I think they did a fantastic job. I love everything she comes with. I mean, I have some theories as to why they waited so long to actually unveil her, but I'm not going to say them on a podcast. So um, we'll oh, leave it at that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Greg. Ask ha- Greg later. <laughs> <laughs> Greg. Uh, Greg. How, yeah. How up to date are you on them? On the figures? Yeah. I have very few. I've got uh, Goliath, Demona, and Bronx, and that's it. Uh, I'm. I have a supplier who uh, knows who he is. Probably, I don't know if he listens to this podcast, but uh, he's been derelict uh, in uh, getting them to me. But uh, um, I'm not too concerned. I know he is. He's a terror that flaps in the night. Uh, well, he's not, but I know why you say that. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and... Uh, Corinne, how are you doing with those since uh, I know shipping to Canada aside? 
Well, I absolutely love them. I'm very happy with the ones that I do have, but right now I've only got six because that's as many as have been delivered to me. And since, like I said, shipping to Canada is crazy expensive, uh, I get mine from Big Bad Toy Store and I have them do the uh, pile of loot. So when it gets big enough and they say, oh, we really need to ship this now, that's when I, uh, get, my, uh, I get them to send me my pile of loot. So at this point, I have Thalog, Hudson, Bronx, Demona, Goliath, Broadway, and Brooklyn. I'm looking forward to getting, you know, the Steel Con robots and Xanatos and all that, all that fun stuff. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. And now we're going to do first impressions on Gargoyles Issue 9, which by now you should all have in hand. And that was a doozy um jennifer do you have a first impression you want to give for that one um i i really liked um we're really ramping up the drama and i like that um i like that even though it's not an action-packed issue there's still like that anticipation in the drama and and uh i think the art for it really pushes that as well um uh the the line the wicked witch of the west side made me cackle out loud <laughs> <laughs> as a new yorker yes yes, yes and, trust me <laughs> uh and elisa's middle name uh made me tear up a little yeah. finally a middle great. name <laughs> It was a fantastic choice. I, I love the issue also. I love that both lawyers were competent, even if um, Margot just kept on enraging me throughout the entire story. I, I defi she definitely wish she was crushed in City of Stone now. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot say she isn't good at her job. And um, I'm as a person who enjoys the drama, I'm glad. She is, as someone who's rooting for Goliath throughout all this, I'm glad. I mean, I wish it, she wasn't. And I love the framing device. It's not just Lexington narrating. It's Lexington having a met an instant message discussion with Stagheart in London. Yeah, I do enjoy that. I, I enjoy from book to book that we're getting, like, different characters speaking or speaking. Her voices the telling the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I also enjoy very much the fact that the two lawyers are very competent. I enjoy the back and forth between the two. Um, I did enjoy Goliath saying, you're trying to make me angry and it's working, but I'm not <laughs> all for it. So that I really liked. Um, I also, uh, it made me curious as to why Goliath was so resistant to having Elisa on the stand. I would get. I would say he just doesn't want to get him, her involved in his mess. But then but there's Bluestone. That's <laughs> it. There and Bernard is there, and you know, there's a bunch mm. of other people who are there, and he doesn't mind them being uh, called on the stand. Him. But well, her. oh, I can understand why. I can definitely understand why because this is potentially, depending on what comes out, we don't know how Margot's going to cross-examine her career killing i mean what stops if everything comes out every perp she put away from immediately calling their lawyers and that maza threatened to have her monsters eat us unless there's we confessed or something 
maybe. Still, like, still throws Bluestone under the bus. Yep. No, Halcyon. I, I, oh, man, Halcyon. I know you tried, buddy. But, uh, wow. uh, he didn't call Bluestone to the stand. The judge did. The judge did. Yep. And and, and that, Matt only testified as to whether or not Goliath would was a danger. That's true. No, it's it's still, a, I still really like smart. she's. I get why he's trying. He's trying to protect her because you know, um, it's Goliath. But uh, I don't think he gave her the option. He should have let her. But. You know how men are. They just suck it up. and <laughs> yeah, I will protect her and I will keep her away from this mess. Meanwhile, she's like, dude, I'm here. Let me help. Uh-huh. But we'll see what happens. I'm just, you know, riveted by this courtroom drama. So. Same. Yeah. I, I'm loving it. And Greg, thank you for bringing that to us. Is, <laughs> well, Greg, is there very welcome. Is there anything you'd like to say about the issue just a little bit of before we move on to Dark Ages issue three? Generally speaking, I'm really pleased. I feel good that, uh, you know, it's always nerve wracking when you do an issue or an episode and there's no real action to it. You know, I mean, that's always a risk. Um, and, uh, so I'm glad that you guys feel like, okay, we had enough drama here that we didn't miss the punching. <laughs> uh, and that, you know, that's a relief. Um, I, you know, uh, Goliath uh, being reluctant to call Elisa because he's trying to be protective feels very Goliath to me. <laughs> um, uh, not necessarily that that's the right thing to do, but just it feels but very, it's very Goliath. <laughs> It is very um, it's just at some so, point the um, have to learn bad girl yeah <laughs> a strong independent woman she don't need no man indeed <laughs> or cargo <laughs> Goliath there are these books you need you should take a look at there's this character in them named Tamil and don't be like that Jen gets oh it. my god Elisa should take Goliath to see the Barbie movie <laughs> uh. <laughs> in 2023 assuming they're both still alive yes. when that comes out <laughs> they lead violent lives so who knows <laughs> <laughs> all right um dark ages issue three uh jen do you, do you have a first impression of that one um hippolyta is an asshole and i'm really upset <laughs> Those mentor. <laughs> um, uh, the wind ceremony had me literally crying. That was beautiful. Um, I, you know, uh, there, and one like one frame that really got me, um, is when they're coming back and Hudson is holding the baby. And he's just like, he's like curled around it. So protective like, and I absolutely love that frame so much. The whole thing was, I I mean, we, um, it's just weird seeing the art, Archmage on our side. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I loved the line uh, um, where they're like, oh, you know, fire's a horrible way to die. <laughs> and it's like, there ain't no one left that's alive in there. <laughs> so, no no man perished in this fire. <laughs> that, that was a challenge to get through. Um, I could just yeah. feel, I mean, I don't actually talk to Disney. My editor does that. Uh, Nate does that. But uh, I could just feel Disney going, well, and what exactly are we objecting to here? <laughs> how do I, I object to this? <laughs> I know what he's saying. But how do I object to this? <laughs> and, uh, um, it took some uh, effort for me to craft that one line of dialogue to get the idea across in a way that, shall we say, was um, less censorable than than hmm. usual. Um, it was it was quite well crafted. I very much liked that line. Yeah. And the just, you know, Goliath facing away and just the, the, the eye looking back. And that's <laughs> it. I was like, I feel like it's a very Goliath way of saying that, too. Like, so it doesn't seem like it's it's extra, like it's an, you know, a weird line. It just seems like something like Goliath in passing would go. Eh, yeah, there ain't no one. <laughs> they all dead. Yeah. <laughs> I have a couple of things. I mean, Jenny mentioned most of it, but um, I like that Angel's tiara is actually becoming a little bit of a minor story beat there. I don't think it was ever meant to be, but the fandom totally latched onto that as a part of her ensemble for many years. I'm happy to see that being picked up on a little bit. And uh, I did, after I read this, looked up the history of how Cullen died, and Greg, you did do a good job of uh, keeping true to the history. I was wondering last issue, why is Cullen addressing Mentor as the Ritterick? And uh, then I look it up, and there there is someone called the Ritterick, a, a chieftain who had his daughter kidnapped by Cullen during the Civil War. Um, apparently went much worse for the daughter in the actual history, but uh, we're not going to talk about that because we don't want to upset anyone. And uh, the rhetoric killed him. You're adding a syllable. Um, it's two syllables. You, Ritterick. It's Ritterick. It's not. There's not three syllables. Ritterick. <laughs> I am not good at Gaelic. <laughs> I'm not either, but I know it's only two syllables. Um, you see, you're going to correct my pronunciation with every issue. Vala last time, Ritterick this time, Ritterick this time. So I have a feeling this is going to be an ongoing joke. <laughs> we'll, do, we'll do a cut reel later of all the times you've been corrected on how to say something. No, I've, I've <laughs> left those all in, so I don't mind. <laughs> I don't mind learning. I like learning on the job. <laughs> uh, Corinne, do you have any thoughts on Dark Ages 3? I very much enjoyed the whole like i consumed one two three all in a row I, I hadn't seen them yet uh so it was a trio of uh made clearly one would what would be one tv episode a uh, great setup for everything that we have seen in previous gargoyles episodes you know going into the story how demona became the archmage angel sorry how angel became the archmage's apprentice uh setting up 
you know, the relationship between uh, Mal Malcolm and the captain of the guard and all these things. And um, I very much enjoyed reading the whole batch. Um, I'm also very much enjoying uh, Sherry's story at the end of the books. Yes. That's really good. And, you know, reading those and then rewatching Avalon part one, it's like, oh yeah, this is, that, that all crosses together now. And you know, all these, this, these lovely yeah. things uh, just, so yeah, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm excited about it. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing more and reading more. And uh, so, yeah. All right. Oh, I, think I, I also one. liked the, I also liked the mirroring conversations between oh, yeah. Malcolm and Mentor and the Archmage and Angel. And I love mm -hmm. that we that he officially gets named mentor. And then you think about in Awakenings, he's like, you guys, you humans have to name everything. And I, that's immediately what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. But it's also, you know, mentor is like, yes, we will do this alliance with the 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 uh, arm bracing thing. And Angel's kind of like yeah, okay, I guess I'll do it. There was a difference in attitude and how they acquiesced. So there's there's a little bit of something there that I want to see more of. Well, something, something. Join us now for our discussion on the price, and Corinne's going to rejoin us for Avalon Part 1 soon. And I have a feeling we're going to have a lot to say about that infant we saw in uh, <laughs> Dark Ages Issue 3. This has been Nightwatch. Sleep well. Welcome back, Gargoyles fans, to another episode of Voices from the Eerie. I'm your co-host, Greg Bashansky, and joining me is my partner in crime, my co-host, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hello, everyone. And rejoining us is the co-creator, supervising producer of the first two seasons of Gargoyles and the writer of the current comics, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hi. I wore this Gargoyle shirt that I wore for the news segment that went with Upgrade. <laughs> Hopefully by now we all have our neck of vows two packs and we have our Phoenix Gates to explain all this. And if not, well, um, there's always this tattoo that I've got. I touched it and we time traveled. <laughs> Jen, can you reach yours? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think anyone wants to see where mine is, right? <laughs> <laughs> love it love it <laughs> we'll tell that story down the road but anyway um speaking of comics we're about to jump to the price one of my personal favorite episodes of the series one of my personal favorite single episodes it's in my top five maybe even my top three but i believe you've said this is this is based on a disney adventures comic written by lee nordlane and in that one it was goliath statue which was swapped out by Xanatos and Demona tried to take control of the clan as she is want to do. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I haven't just said it. We gave him credit on the episode. It wasn't like um, we were trying to hide it or anything like that. Uh, Lee, uh, who I didn't know back then, um, Lee had written a gargoyle story for Disney Adventures. Um, and in those days, I was rarely given the opportunity to sort of supervise the the uh the work that was going on with gargoyles outside of the show um and 
So, you know, that story showed up sort of fully completed and it's not canon. Um, but I thought uh, that idea of substituting a statue for a real gargoyle while the gargoyle was sleeping was a brilliant little nugget of an idea. And the rest of the story didn't fit our continuity per se. It's a fun story. I like it. I'm, I'm not trying to be negative about it. It just didn't fit our personal continuity. But I thought that's, that nugget of an idea is too good for us not to use at some point. And obviously that story must have come out earlier um, for it to be incorporated in the first half of season two. I'm guessing it probably came out you know, either during season one or, or, uh, just after. Um, but, uh, you know, that was, that became an index card on my board and, and eventually it became one that Michael Reeves sort of, uh, grabbed a hold of, uh, and, uh, he and I worked out this story. I mean, uh, based on Lee's idea, um, and, I think it winds up being, you know, packing a, a really great punch in terms of it being both a Hudson and a Xanatos story. Really, sort of is telling about Hudson's importance to the clan, uh, how it affects Goliath and Broadway and Brooklyn and Lexington. Uh, even Elisa, Elisa gets a great sort of heroic, um, nearly unbelievably heroic moment um and uh but mostly what you get is a really great character study of hudson Santos, and even owen um and some of it what is you know us laying pipe for things that are coming down the road way down the road um and some of it was a discovery for us uh and but uh the work that in particular, I mean, everyone's great in it, but the work that uh, Jonathan Frakes and Ed Asner uh, gave us in this episode is just. Uh, Ed was uh, freaking amazing. Yeah, just yes. stellar. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I watched it again last night. I hadn't seen it in a long time. And, uh, you know, I'm just missing ed all over again you know uh my note but it, just flat out says ed asner is acting the fuck out of this yeah. yes i mean he has that line you know uh at the end of the show where he says um something along the lines of uh you know what will be your legacy xanatos and all i could think about was ed's legacy and how phenomenal it is um and if we, uh, meaning gargoyles, is even a small part of that legacy, I'm, I'm, you know, honored. But uh, I, I miss the guy all the time, just uh, every day, and uh, and this is why. I mean, it's not the only reason, but it's a big part of it. Just what he is able to do with, you know. 25 lines i have no idea 30 lines maybe um is pretty incredible and you know the justice he does to that character um 
both in the even in the fight at the beginning, you know, uh, is just pretty stunning to me to see what twenty eight years later, twenty yeah, twenty eight years later, something like that. Um, I uh, it knocked me out, really did. Yeah, speaking of stellar, stunning, and knockout, especially after our last episode, the cage. The animation in this episode. Oh yeah, it's My gorgeous. God. I would I would kill for some of the animation cells from this one. Some really good ones. Yeah, I, I mean it. it it's so I, I think the show is so strong that we are able to survive episodes that are poorly animated, and you actually get used to seeing our characters off model. I mean, you you just sort and then you see this and they're on model. I mean, they're stunningly on model, every single one of them. And you're just like, oh yeah, that's what they're supposed to look <laughs> like. That's so much better. Um, and the movement, uh, there's this one great moment when Hudson is chasing Macbeth. Um, and, the bouncing and off the, the building? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, launch it, you know, he's flying, then hits the building and launches himself off and that's our storyboard artist you know i'm i mean i it's been so long since i pulled out that script but i doubt that was in the script i'd i'd lay heavy odds that that was whoever boarded that uh sequence put that in there but it's easy not easy but it's easy-ish to put that in a board to actually animate it with the weight of the character and, and have it come off as effectively as it does. you feel like he impacts it and like, yeah. like just is prepared for that push off and uh, just really great. It's really great. So yeah, the animation is phenomenal in this episode. And, you know, that was what we experienced on the show that uh, um, we could survive, you know, episodes where the animation wasn't stellar because we had great writing and great acting and uh and you know characters that people cared about and all these plus signs that if our animation wasn't up to snuff the it, we still wound up with stuff that that people could enjoy but but when you see these episodes take the scripts which again i think are strong in general and take the acting which is stellar all the time and then just plus it when it's working in our favor, we we're hard to top. Honestly, I know that sounds incredibly arrogant, <laughs> but, but I'm not taking credit for it. I mean, again, I don't animate anything. I can't draw anything. But uh, uh, but when that when we're firing on all cylinders like that, we are a tough act to uh, top. I think I really do believe that. Um, it. Uh, I think episodes like this stand the test of time. They look great still today. Yeah, it's uh, it's fun. There, you know, there are little things that I look at. You know, something that may have seemed clever to us at the time, which is that Elisa emptied her clip on that uh, on the box of rugs. You know, the rope to save Broadway's life. So later, she's out of bullets, and I'm like, and that made sense to us at the time. And now I look at it and go, I'm sorry you're a cop, you've emptied your clip, 
it's been hours. Why didn't you reload? <laughs> so now I feel like, okay, we made her look stupid. Instead of making her look heroic, we made her look dumb. Um, but at the time, the thing that I think I was thinking about that used to drive me crazy about a lot of TV shows, particularly in the when I grew up in the 70s and 80s. Infinite bullets. Um, infinite bullets, yeah. You know, <laughs> Westerns in particular, where they're all using six guns, right? They're all and they're trusty and twenty they shooters. Keep, yeah, they just keep shooting and shooting and shooting <laughs> until you know they get to the moment where the hero is out of bullets, and you're like, okay, but you've been firing for a half hour uh, <laughs> without reloading. Um, so you know, it just becomes this. I I I, I used to get the sense that. You take it for granted that all actors on TV have to go to the bathroom, right? I mean, we don't want to see it. I don't need to know about it. I just take it for granted that when we cut to away at some point, these characters have to go to the bathroom. And now with, and I used to feel like, and that's how they treat reloading guns. You know what happens? We don't need to see it. It just happens off screen at some point. They, you know, it's like going to the bathroom. It just happens. Move on, move on. She was watching out um, for them. She was afraid Macbeth might come back. There, that's the ticket. Um, so it it just uh, so now so that was my thing. It was like I, I don't want to feel like she has a, a, an unlimited uh, amount of bullets in her gun at any one time. And having done that, then it didn't occur to me. Yes, but this is hours later. By now, she must have another clip. <laughs> she should have reloaded. You know. <laughs> um, so that uh, that when I was watching that last night, I was like, "Oh, that's a little embarrassing." Um, but uh, but most of it, I think, you know, stands the test of time. Maybe not that moment, <laughs> but um, most of the rest yeah. of it, I feel pretty good about. Fair enough. And you play fair. You throw that powder. We don't know what it is, and we almost forget about it after. But even when we see Hudson brushing it off and then goliath quote unquote kills macbeth and um actually i think this is a good time to go into this one i was never confused by this because i always assumed the characters never had access to the script and never necessarily knew what i knew as a viewer but some people have been confused why are they saying that 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 macbeth is dead and then later saying he's immortal and this or that like they don't quite understand what the characters know at this point i just assumed that they figured that Macbeth is long lived at this point as after City of Stone, but they don't know about the link at this point. They don't know what the circumstances are that he could die under. That's my impression anyway. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's the distinction isn't hard, and maybe we should have spelled it out more. Um, and maybe that would have been a good thing to spell it out more, but it's basically this distinction between the traditional view of the Greek gods and the traditional view of the Norse gods. And the traditional view of the Greek gods was that they were immortal, meaning they could not die. You know, you can't kill them. You might be able to tie them up, you know, um, but you can't kill them. They're unkillable. They are immortal. They are gods. That was not the view of the Norse gods. The Norse gods were, um, mortal in the sense that they could die balder is killed um ragnarok comes and almost all of them die um but 
they wouldn't grow old. I mean, they would grow old. Norse gods needed the apples of Idun to stay young, but they wouldn't uh, get sick and, and die. You know, in other words, as long as no one killed them, they could live forever. Um, they'd need the apples to stay young, but they would go on forever. And that was what we assumed. I mean, obviously, Goliath, Hudson, etc., knew that Damon and Macbeth and Macbeth had been around for centuries. Um, they knew that. So, in that sense, they're immortal. They're not getting old. They're not dying. But it didn't mean they were unkillable. Um, and that distinction seemed clear enough to us at the time, and still is clear enough to me. I get it. But we also didn't spell that out. I didn't see the need to spell it out now. In hindsight, should we have? Maybe. I, I mean, I don't have strong feelings either way. Uh, um, maybe we could have made it clear, I guess. Um, but that was the distinction, the distinction in essence between how the Greeks viewed immortality and how the, the Norse viewed immortality. Um, and those were two different things. And we were sort of operating on a uh, Northern European uh, Norse model of immortality uh, as opposed to the Greek one. And then, of course, the audience has a little more information about the link between Macbeth and Demona and how it works and um, than our characters do. So um, that's why they think Macbeth is killed. Now, having said that, I never thought that the audience would think Macbeth is dead because, you know, the rule for I mean, not even 2023 sophistication, even in the 90s, we were all sophisticated to know we didn't see the body. He's not dead. He's going to show up again. <laughs> I mean, that that's pretty basic comic book or cartoon 101, right? You know, I mean, it. it I didn't think we were fooling the audience, but I did think that, uh, you know, it was legit to for Goliath and Hudson and the trio to believe that. Macbeth had bought it. Um, you know, he's falling from that height. There's a big explosion. You think, okay, that killed him. Um, but I didn't think the audience would think that. I think they'd figure, I didn't see the body. Show me the body. You know, kind mm -hmm. of moment. Well, it always worked for me. And speaking of things that worked for me, I this is one of those episodes I do remember my first reaction to. Jen, I'm wondering if you do also. But um, okay, so we think Hudson has turned to stone at night, and I bought into this. And then we get to the uh, commercial break where he's in the cage. And I was one of those people who at the time may have been thinking, is this in his mind? Does he have to beat That's exactly here? what I was going to say. Because, like, I figured I honestly thought he was stone at night. And what we were seeing was just his in his dreamland uh, when, when it first opened up again. 100%. That is a really good story idea that I should do sometime. <laughs> <laughs> Like you got the little uh it's a nugget it's a good nugget yeah i uh, really know that didn't even i don't even know if that occurred to us at the time that people would think that maybe if it did that would have been maybe it occurred to michael uh it would have been very very clever of us but i don't think it occurred to us and i don't know that if it had we would have put it him in such a high-tech cage you know, because I don't would have know, been more if, medieval. Something, yeah, yeah that suited Hudson's mindset as opposed to, and even you know the magic powder and all that sort of stuff, which is a feint that Xanatos 
has the Macbeth robot do in order to, you know, complete the illusion of the theft, the con, in essence, is part of the con. Um, and so, again, even that sort of suggests a more medieval mindset that a trapped Hudson would be in. Uh, so I really like that negative idea, but I honestly don't think that we probably I, thought like, of it. 100% <laughs> what I thought when, like, we come back and I'm like, oh, it's all in in his in a dream. Um, and the powder was to get into his dream kind of thing or something. I just, it was, I just, I was thinking he was dreaming. That's what I was thinking also. And then we get Xanatos and we, this was teased. A so when did you stop the, thinking that? Did you think Xanatos was part of his dream too? Or? No, not at all. As soon as he walks Once Xanatos to, waltzes in and starts getting sassy. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then I figured yeah. it out before we saw the model. But um, we also meet for the, well, we had hints of this before, but we really get here for the first time, a major aspect of Xanatos' character, his desire for immortality. And that is such a, the one thing he can't buy, that's brilliant. He thinks he can. Hmm. Of course he thinks he, thinks he, can, he wants but... it. Oh, I think he wants it. <laughs> well, I, I know. Like, but yeah, but there's a, a difference between wanting it and having it. Yeah. And and then wanting it after you've had after you have it, and and As, and Hudson brings that up like, like Demona and Macbeth aren't very happy, are they? <laughs> I do like that he mentions involving Fox in this plan. Or what good are all the riches on earth if Fox and I can't enjoy them? Yeah, forever. And by that time, Fox is pregnant, so he's probably planning to eventually give that to his son. And uh, at that point, so. No, it's such a great character beat. It really says a lot about him. And Xanatos is bitchy in this episode. He's grumpy. Like he's <laughs> Hudson, Hudson touches a nerve, a really oh, yeah. raw nerve. And I'm and I'm watching this and I'm thinking, is this what it was like when David is growing up and having quote unquote debates with his father? Did his father know how to touch nerves like that? <laughs> Uh, yeah, like he like right out the gate, Hudson nails him. Like it's like I, you know, I get I get what your problem is, and and that bothers David too. Like it's just he doesn't like it. Growing old terrifies him, and he's like nipping at at Owen through the whole thing too. Like he's so crabby yeah. that he's like getting little snipes, little snipes at at Owen on top of it all. Yeah, and and also how snotty gets with Hudson after that. What about you? Still wasting your evenings in front of a television set, and normally he doesn't insult his quote unquote enemies that way. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it, it's it's Hudson got it. It's interesting that um, you know with this with Double Jeopardy, we get to see uh, David just. Slightly off his game. I mean, David off his game is still formidable, but um, but we do see these moments where he's uh, um, not quite his full self. He still has these great quips. I mean, throughout the episode um, that I like, and ultimately at the end, you know, we get to the moment where Owen's calling security 
because Hudson's getting away and it's sort of like, no, let him go. He's earned it, you know. And he and that's the, waltzes out of there. <laughs> and, he doesn't even look back. He's just going. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the David we know, the one yeah. who isn't doesn't give a damn about revenge, doesn't, you know, this guy thwarted my plan. All right, fine. But I might find a use for him again down the road, you know. So uh let him go. Uh and one way or another, he'll be an asset. Right. So it uh that's uh that's our guy sort of starting to return to form um but by this time he's he has been needling owen all through the episode in little i think unconscious ways uh and microaggressions <laughs> right and and owen uh yeah we didn't have that term back then but i think that's what it was and uh owen uh clearly is affected by it and we think of Owen as so completely unflappable, in, yeah, imperturbable, yes. yeah, you know, kind of thing, and and he's perturbed, he's flapped, he is um, flapped, <laughs> and uh, so he does something. Now, of course, this is Pipe. Also, this is a, a a hint. Both what he does, how he reacts, how Xanatos reacts to it, is a hint to something that's coming way down the road, but. Um, uh obviously that scene is very different after you've seen the whole series than it is the first time you watch it but um but still it's it's this startling sort of moment which both of them treat almost casually uh, uh and yet Owen at the end is holding his fist his stone fist like this <laughs> which I'm sure was the board artist, you know. Um, like, um, with a little like, oh yeah, Weissman here. No, um, you know, Owen DeZanatos is like, okay, yeah, fuck you. Yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, I assumed that was Lane Pipe at the time. I had no idea what it was Lane Pipe for. I never figured it out until it happened. We'll talk about that. When we get there, but I was thinking, ah, he's going to turn, he's going to betray Xanatos at some point, because that is what you would normally expect at some point on a show. And uh, we didn't get that, but we'll talk about what we got later. But Jen, what were you thinking when he, when that happened? When he, to me, it was the needling of that, that Xanatos had been doing the whole time. He, was it was a one up like fine i'll show you how dedicated and uh i am to you and it was it was a a loyalty play which i mean it, it was which but, it was yeah but uh that's all i was thinking at the time i wasn't thinking beyond that right and i remember i had a note here and this note is dumb i was thinking why didn't they get a lab rat then i stopped and i said oh wait they did get a lab rat his name was hudson yeah, but what if, what if it had to be sapient? It had to be, you know, there's like a whole bunch of things that you could put in that whole thing to make it that where yeah. throwing a guinea pig in it wasn't going to work. I could see that also, yeah. Either way, whichever sorcerer came up with that thing had a sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yep. Watch, we're gonna see that. In, we're gonna see that in Time Dancer sometime. Watch. <laughs> the freaking call. Well, I mean, it does. It does call the question. You know, uh, what was the cauldron for originally? You know, um, dunking your enemies yeah. in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, oh, if you steal my Statue cauldron, making. you think it's, you know, I'll I'll create a legend that's so appealing that that's what you'll try to do with it first. And, uh, and then you'll really be screwed. Um, but, uh, yeah, you, you know, at some point we'll have to go back and sort of look into the origins of the cauldron, but, um, yeah. I'm not going to pretend that's coming up anytime soon because it isn't, um, but and too much else. We got other, we got other interesting things coming up. So excellent. <laughs> This is a very character-focused episode, of course. We've been talking most about character beats instead of plot beats, because the plot is fairly straightforward in this one. It's the deep dives into who these people are that really interests me in this one, particularly Hudson, Xanatos, and Owen, as we have described. But we get a good look at Goliath here, and um, when he gets angry, actually, we've talked about Goliath and his code when it comes to killing in the past, and this about sums it up. He The first time he thinks he kills Macbeth, it's to protect his clan, he takes no pleasure in it. He feels tries he no to choice. make an excuse for himself. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Hudson's like, "Oh, no one's questioning you. You know, they were doing what they had to do." The second time, though, <laughs> the wrath of Goliath. We haven't seen him like this since Awakening Part Two, and I don't think we're going to see him like this again until Hunter's Moon Part One. So uh, this was just. His response there too, like just that was so well animated too. Goliath's reaction to Hudson, quote unquote, being smashed into pieces. Uh that was really well done. Uh yeah, I mean a lot of credit to the board artists and the animators on that. Seriously. Um, but uh you know, I think uh I think it's easy when we put Goliath in the superhero role episode after episode to think of him as, uh, and I'm not knocking this. I love Superman, but to think of him as Superman, you know, um, he's not, he's got a very specific mindset. That's still pretty damn medieval. We've made it clear from, you know, the pilot on that, um, he sees a distinction between, uh, um, killing in cold blood, killing in the heat of battle. Um, and obviously this is a character who's believes in the possibility of redemption. I mean, sees that as important. Um, so is always going to try not to kill, but, um, but yeah, he's willing to kill in self-defense or in defense of his clan. If he has to, if there's no other, it feels like there's no other option. Um, I think when he throws that lightning rod that strikes the um, sky sled at the beginning of the episode, I don't even necessarily think he thinks that is going to kill Macbeth. Um, Not from, this isn't another immortality discussion, just, you know, Macbeth being Macbeth, he's just disabling that sky sled so that he can't shoot his clan. The fact that it completely destroys the sky sled and it crashes and blows up well that wasn't his intent i don't i'm not saying he's going to lose a ton of sleep over it 
but you can tell he feels a little bad about it. Um, it wasn't, you know, he did what he needed to do to, to, to defend his, his family. Um, but that's intentionally contrasting with what he does at the end of the episode. Um, and, um, I mean, one thing that was fun that I remember from back in the day is that, you know, we bring in John Reese Davies, uh, to record five lines of dialogue, <laughs> four lines, which he, which we just reuse over and over throughout the episode <laughs> or the robust line. And then the fifth line, I guess we could have done it with technology, just sort of slowing it down. You know, um, we have the, even in the nineties, we knew how to do that, but I had this feeling that we'd get something a lot more interesting and a lot more fun if we had John do that. And we did. <laughs> I mean, that was the fifth line is, is saying you'll have to do better than that, but say it like you're a dying robot, you know, slowing down. <laughs> and he did it and he just it was perfect and it was just great. And um and it's such a great tag to that robot's fate. And then the eye pops out and everything. <laughs> I love that sequence. <laughs> um, but you know, it's a huge shock. To Goliath, when he punches through uh, Macbeth's abdomen, he's not thinking it's okay. It's a robot. He's thinking I'm, I'm killing I'm eviscerating this, this guy. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, it, uh, from an S and P standpoint, you were lucky <laughs> that uh, he was a robot because otherwise, you know, I think even for Adrian, that might have been a little much. But um, been pushing it a little. <laughs> but. Uh, uh, but from the standpoint of uh, Goliath, there's no doubt what the mindset is. Um, and uh, it's always fun for us because Goliath is so good to see these moments where it's like, yeah, but don't forget, he is a badass. Um, and it's easy to underestimate him because he tries not to hurt people. He's a big guy who knows this, who has a pretty objective view of his own power, his own strength, um, his own, for lack of a better term, lethality, you know, um, and he reigns that in all the time or almost all the time. And so those moments when he doesn't, they're terrifying, which we want to preserve. Yeah. I mean, again, early episodes, we could use the gargoyles potential threat as the cliffhanger for a commercial or something like that. You know, uh, we, you know, you can't do that once you've seen them be good heroes over and over and over and over again. So every once in a while, it's great to really remind the audience, don't forget <laughs> these guys. They're warriors. Yeah. <laughs> and they were raised in a different era. Um, so that was cool. Um, it was very, it was very cool. So, um, I don't remember watching this the first time when I figured out it was a robot, but I, I remember the second time it showed up saying the same lines. I got a little bit suspicious. And then Xanatos's line about this Macbeth fellow, maybe gunning for your job to Owen threw me off yet again. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, that, that did throw me off. 
because you start thinking like what like he's saying the lines again and stuff like that so you're like and we've we've seen these robots in this in the show so like you're thinking maybe but no uh when he's like oh he's gonna get him for your job kind of thing you're like okay so scratch that take backsies yeah i mean you know i think michael reeves did a terrific job on this script at keeping um or uh, at keeping the audience guessing or or rather leading them down uh, at least briefly these wrong paths you know their expectations shifting i mean we have seen robots before we've seen a robot poses xanatos with a very complicated ai system right um this Macbeth robot clearly, I mean, it's certainly sophisticated, but it doesn't nearly have the level of complication as Coyote. Um, it's got a, you know, four responses it can choose from. <laughs> and that's it. Just spins um, the wheel and picks one. <laughs> yeah, you know, whatever. Uh, it, but it does the job particularly in the first sequence you know when you those are the four lines you uh hear um there's no there's no reason to think that it's a robot um and the way it takes down all the gargoyles isn't dissimilar from what it manages to do in enter Macbeth, right you know i mean the sky sled is new but it's not so beyond Macbeth's technology level have, yeah. yeah that that it in and, in and of itself is a clue um and we've seen Macbeth take the gargoyle I mean here's a guy without superpowers he's our Batman right I mean we've seen this guy use technology and and mad skills to uh take them out before so there's no reason to think robot in that first sequence in the second sequence we're giving more hints out a, he survived. Well, how did you do that? Well, we know that he's a, can only be killed by Demona. So uh, we we have no reason to think that's not why he survived, right? Um, and we didn't see the body. So for all we knew, he jumped off at the last minute and was wearing a jetpack. Who knows? I mean, it, it doesn't really matter. The <laughs> point is, is that from the audience standpoint, when you see him the second time, there's no reason to think just because he's alive again that he isn't Macbeth. Now, in fact, that probably there probably were two different robots. The first one blew up when it crashed, right? That's okay. Xanatos had a backup copy, you know, and uh Plan B. And and that was right. And so off it goes. But uh but that in and of itself, the fact that he shows up again isn't a clue. Now if you're paying attention, you may notice, oh, he's repeating a couple of these lines again. Um, but you know, everything else about him could be Macbeth. And then, like you said, Xanatos has this line about hey, that Macbeth guy, uh, and Owen has lines about Macbeth reports and you can tell they're putting it all in quotes in hindsight. If you're watching it a second time and you listen to how Owen and Xanatos discuss Macbeth and you already know it's a robot, you can see that it fits. And that again, I, I credit to a combination of Michael's script, uh, Jamie Thomason's direction, and just terrific as always work from Jonathan and Jeff Bennett um, in how they read the lines. 
but it's not obvious until you already know the game, right? You know, it, it's Michael wrote it in such a way that it plays just as well if you think that's really Macbeth as it does once you know it's a robot, um, which both those guys do. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't want to make it sound like that's a, that's a super hard thing, but that's, you know, Michael Reeves just uh, knocking that out. You know, it, 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 it's just a little smart sort of take on it that, uh, that allows us to, to sort of still create this, uh, this level of uh, um, uncertainty for the audience, I'd say. Um, and uh, that's a great credit to uh, the script, I think. All the execution too, but it still always starts, you know, with when uh, I, the script yeah. and what Michael does. Yeah, when I first saw the episode, I was thinking after it was done, why did they choose? Why did Santos choose Macbeth? But then the more I thought about it, it was like, well, he's not going to choose Dracon, especially since by this point Dracon is behind bars. If he sends the pack, if he, if it's the pack, they're going to know it's him who's behind it or suspect that it's him. If it's Thalog, who had just recently shown up, actually showed up later because it's there early, but we'll talk about that. That's That might give away the game, too. If they send Demona, they're probably going to be able to pick up this robot much sooner. Yeah, I mean, Macduff is known to the clan, known to use both science and sorcery. You had to believe that that glitter <laughs> was a magical powder. Um, and... Uh, uh glitter is evil i mean i do believe that with you know with all my heart um so do i the herpes of crafts uh, right and uh uh but you had to believe that was magic and so macbeth fit the bill and obviously i guess in a sense demona would too but yeah i think it'd be the clan knows demona really well macbeth they only know sort of passingly um they've encountered him a couple times they battled him They've had, you know, one really bad encounter with him, one that was a little more mixed. Um, uh, there's obviously more to the story. Even uh, Goliath must see that there's more to the story. I mean, but there's a reason Brooklyn and Broadway and Lexington are shouting it at Macbeth going, why the hell are you doing this? You know, they just don't know him well enough to know. And with Demona, I think, you know, Four lines of dialogue for Demona wouldn't have cut it, you know. It, there even assuming he could get those recorded and stuff like that, you know, he wouldn't have been able to pull it off in the same way. So Macbeth just ticked all the boxes from the science, the sorcery, and just a, you know, known to the gargoyles, but not known well enough. I think is what it comes down to. So I, you know, that was a sort of easy pick i think all right let's talk about hudson's ingenuity and resourcefulness i love that he uses a shard of his own skin as a means of getting out of there i i, I love it he takes out a steel clan robot with it yeah i mean we wanted just to a reminder really... that hudson's a badass warrior too <laughs> right i mean there i i know from uh from memos from back in the day that um there was some impetus I think uh, from Michael to have the gargoyles figure it out and show up to save Hudson. And I was like, no, 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 
he's got to save himself. Um, we've got to demonstrate that Xanatos was wrong about him. And it's interesting because it's also a view that Hudson had of himself. If you go back to Long Way to Morning, um, this view that Hudson feels like, oh, I'm past my prime, I can't handle this stuff anymore. But when push comes to shove, Hudson can handle Demona, he can handle Xanatos, he can sure as hell handle a Steel Clan robot. We've seen him do that before. So I felt like, yeah, he's got to uh, be his own savior there. Plus, I just love the idea of him showing up to, in essence, his own funeral. His funeral. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes. it's not the wind ceremony. It's not literally the funeral. It's really just the moments after. But I do love the idea of him, you know, just arriving back, in time like, to hey. <laughs> hearing. Because don't we all want that? Just to, Isn't there a part of all of us who want to just... Okay, if I fake my death just so I could sit in the back of my funeral, what are people going to say about me? I want to know who's showing up. Who's going to be at this funeral? There's a part of me. The eulogy. There's a part of me that really wants to know. <laughs> Not enough to do anything about it, but you know, <laughs> I'm curious about that. And there's no doubt that the whole idea of Xanatos wanting immortality—that is so me. I mean that. Uh, I mean, I, that's not the way I pursue mortality. I pursue it through um, trying to make great memories with my kids and with these stories that I'm telling. You know, if there's any real immortality for me, it's it's in what I write, you know. But, uh, uh, but it is something I think about all the time. So, of course, that becomes Xanatos's, you know. Achilles heel. This is what I need. How do I make myself immortal? Only he takes it much more literally. Talk about being literal minded. Um, Indeed. <laughs> as literal as the cauldron. <laughs> yeah. Me per me personally, as far as immortality goes, I mean, I suppose I just hope that people, the people that I care about, remember me fondly. That's when, if that ever, when that happens. I. That's all I can really hope for. You guys do not want to go into the dark place that is my head on this whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Nope, we're just going to bypass my thoughts there. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Write a novel one day all about it. You'll be the next uh, philosopher, author. It's <laughs> oh. not happening. Hey, maybe, maybe even a religion will spring up around it. Oh, <laughs> The cult um, of Jen. <laughs> <laughs> that already exists. Let's be what? honest. That already exists. The cult of Jen. People have accused <laughs> it. I know that. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Okay. Um, oh, not- uh, one of the things that like hit me, especially on like on the backside of, of reading Gargoyle's Dark Ages number two, was Hudson's line about most of my clan are dead and dust. And like that just hit me in the solar plexus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting watching it last night, uh, you know, with yeah. uh with Dark Ages uh fresh in your mind. Right, exactly. It it, it does carry uh more weight because for standards and practices reasons, you know, there really are no gargoyles um, that we get to know who 
don't who aren't also survivors um and uh so now meeting characters who are not um and specifically verity um i i should point out that there's no way the audience reading the book knows that her name is verity because again that's a uh out of universe construct name you know in other words i have to name all these characters uh so the, the artists know what script, to draw script page so the <laughs> artist knows who i'm talking about but um, it's on her guard wiki oh, again <laughs> the gargoyles have no names it's not like hudson knows her as verity um but uh and so that name never gets used uh as a name in the, in the book i tried to drop a little um verity that, that was clever word yeah <laughs> in there um mm-hmm. but uh um and i feel like it's a good name for her i do feel that way but uh uh but you could easily read that book and and i'd be sitting here talking about verity and you're like wait which one's verity i don't, I don't know which one you're talking about um it's hudson's mate mentor's mate um but you know when you see issue two of dark ages and then you see this episode again. It's got uh, a, a poignancy that it just didn't have before because we did not know anybody. We know intellectually that the rest of his clan is gone, but now we can feel it. Uh, if I've done my job right, and oh, I think uh, I have, that, but mostly because yeah. because it, it hit me for sure. <laughs> mostly because yeah. Drew Moss did my job yeah. for me. <laughs> like I like I said earlier, that slayed me and. Um, Watching this episode again, I mean, I, I mean, I, I feel that she's never far from his mind, but I'm sure he was thinking of her throughout this entire ordeal as well. It just seems like a time when you're thinking about death, old age, and mortality. He's going to reflect on this stuff, too, as much as Xanatos is trying not to. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, when Xanatos mentions Fox, just mentions her. There's no way that Hudson's not thinking about his mate. And I think even back then, in 1994 or five, what year was it that we were making this? Um, I don't know. I guess it must have been 94, maybe early 95. I'm not sure. But uh, even then, you know, we were aware of Hudson's make. Um, I, I won't pretend we had all the details on the character that you saw in the pages of dark ages but um you know we knew she had existed um we knew that uh she passed sometime before the wyvern massacre um we knew that she was the biological mother of broadway um and the rookery mother of all of them i I imagine i mean i can't remember with precision but i imagine that that thought would not have been alien to Michael and I when we were working on this story, you know, the idea of what Hudson's lost and how personal that loss to him. It isn't an intellectual thing for him as it is for most of the audience seeing it in 1994 or five. Um, it's, uh, it's personal. It's extremely personal. And, uh, and I think that was in our heads, um, even back then. But it obviously carries more weight for the audience, and even me, now, that we've actually seen a little bit of her story. 
Definitely. And like I said, I just Hudson and Xanatos play off of each other so well, just as well as Goliath and Xanatos do. And maybe in some ways even a little bit better. It's terrific. It's fantastic. Like I said, this is my top three single episodes. I love it. I think at one point I said it was my favorite single episode, but then that fluctuates with the mirror and and depending on my mood, but (laughs) just getting into these characters' heads, it's... uh, I've said this over and over. It's a very character-driven piece, and I mean, yeah, someone could view what Hudson says to Xanatos on his way out as about immortality being what you do with the time you have is a bit of a cliche, and maybe it is, but you talk to 10 different people about what they think immortality is and what it means to them, you're going to get 10 different answers, as we yeah. discussed previously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, we all see it through our own lenses. Yeah, is there, I mean, no, nah, I'm not going to go there. Is there uh, <laughs> anything about this episode that we haven't really touched on yet? I mean, there's a lot of fun little moments. I like how Goliath is almost desperate enough to, actually is desperate enough to say, we need to find Demona, and Elisa points out, I have no way of finding her. I don't, well, she's on Avalon right now, but. Elisa's <laughs> <laughs> like, look, I don't want to find her. <laughs> You shouldn't want to find her. <laughs> right. I think there's an aspect to that. But I, uh, I mean, it's also really interesting to me. Watching the episode last night, one thing that struck me is they go to Macbeth's place. We see them fight those cannons, which we must have been in love with those damn cannons because we must have had like four or five cannon battles. <laughs> we'll talk um, about that in Kingdom. <laughs> um, in in uh, the series, but uh, um, but then they, you know, they destroy those cannons, so they're going in, and when we don't see it, I mean, the I I I I think I was conflating a different episode or something, but I assumed that it that there must have been some scene in there, and then I'm watching, I'm like, oh no, we just go to Elisa and. And they're saying, yeah, we totally we looked all over that place and found nothing. And I'm like, oh, that seems like a waste of time <laughs> for us to put on screen. <laughs> uh, you know, was there not? But I guess, you know, it added jeopardy to the episode. Uh, but at this point, the canon stuff feels very rote to me. I, I We must not have thought that at the time. Um, and uh, I... Uh, reading some of the old memos, I think uh, at one point we actually had Banquo and Cleons um, manning those cannons as opposed to them being automated. And then um, my guess is for uh, reasons of economy, we uh, Bronx isn't in the episode, so we would have had to bring Frank Welker in just to play Banquo, and we would have had to bring BJ in, BJ Ward in to play Fleons, and that's two other actors. So we chose to eliminate them, but I think that takes some of the fun out of it. Um, I I think, I mean, I, look, I think it's a great episode, but it, it's sort of odd. I mean, on the one hand, it, of course, they're going to go to Macbeth's place and look. So that makes sense. But the fact that all we showed of it was this cannon battle was a head scratcher <laughs> to me 30 years later. I mean, I, I I sort of went, really? That's what we chose? Okay. All right. I'm sure we made sense to us at the time. You know, we wanted, we pulled the Lisa into it. Uh, that seemed important. 
Um, it seemed important to me to make her feel we wanted more and more to Elisa not be, we have the clan and their friend. We wanted more and more for Elisa to feel part of the clan. And this felt like a big step. Uh, really, this thing that's the big step isn't even her saving Broadway's life, which we could talk about a little more, I suppose. Um, but it uh, it's what she says that in that sort of impromptu memorial service at the end, you know, where she's not an outsider stepping back because they're grieving and she isn't, she is grieving too. Um, and Hudson hugs her as well as all the gargoyles. And, uh, and we wanted to increasingly make it feel like, um, Elise is part of the clan. By the time you get to even the end of the SLG comics, um, let alone what I'm doing now for dynamite. Um, when Goliath, says the number like how many are in the clan he always counts elisa as a member of the clan um always um i don't always make it obvious you'd have to actually do math to go wait where did he get that number and then you'd realize oh he must be counting elisa but um that is goliath's mindset is that she's part of the clan i don't think it was necessarily his mindset already in this episode, but this oh, is I part think, of this oh, is I part of I think the evolution towards that. I I feel or I thought oh, I yeah I was thinking it was because we just had to cage the previous episode and he says to Talon at least it's already part of our clan at that point. So oh yeah, you're right. I'm forgetting. That's right. We did these out of order. Peek behind the scenes, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it's uh, but yeah, he, she definitely is and. Yeah, that I love the the Goliath refers to Elisa as a miracle there because we talked about it previously with the clip, but um, that shot was a miracle. So that line is a lampshade line. You know, you, you've got something that's a little bit of a stretch for the audience to buy into. You sort of lampshade it so that oh, even the characters acknowledge that that was that was a little tough to buy into. But one thing that we did that was very important to me that I kept having to push for throughout the episode is that it's not that she fires one perfect shot. It's that she empties her clip in the, you know, she's taking aim and emptying her clip. And among the nine shots in her gun, two of them hit the target. And then the the box, the crate is heavy enough that with the rope damaged by a couple shots out of nine, um, it falls. Um, and all of it, the timing of it is sort of vaguely miraculous, but I worked hard to make Elisa's, uh, I mean, you know, she's a trained police officer who I'm sure has to do target practice, uh, you know, once a year, just like police officers do. Um, but we didn't want to make it the impossible single shot, you know, the one perfect bullet, right? We really worked to make it seem like she is firing she everything she's got firing that thing. for his life. <laughs> right. And, and and um only a couple of them hit the target. Uh it's not like all nine bullets all, but you hear the sound effects of multiple, multiple bullets. Only two of them actually hit the rope. Um, 
even still it's sort of, and I'd actually uh, cut the whole thing of Broadway, you know, turning to stone in the air and Elisa saving him. Cause I was just like, I don't, I don't know if we can pull this off. And then, and Michael felt um, strongly that we needed it in the episode. And ultimately he was right. And I, I like it. Um, but it, it always made me nervous because it just, uh, and we tried to play fair with the audience. We, sh- we made it, we showed the signage that said that what it was a, a Persian rug thing Persian and, rugs, and it's yeah. on the, it's on the crate and everything like that. So that all the pieces are there so you can buy into it. But, uh, um, and then we lampshade it with the two miracle lines, you know, um, uh, but it, you know, it's a stretch. I'll acknowledge that. But I still, I've come to be very fond of it. Um, and we worked hard to make it just within our universe believable enough, I think. Um, yeah. Although even for us, it's a bit of a stretch. Yeah, and time travel and things aren't. Well, we're almost up to Avalon, so we're going to talk about time travel again very soon. So, But uh, speaking of, I actually think this is a great, episode to end this tier on leading into the next one because like you said Elisa cemented with the clan now especially after the last episode where she said where Goliath says it we have Owen going through this big change it just feels like we're pushing on to something and this episode as I recall we should probably talk about this it aired earlier in the sequence it aired between Outfoxed and Revelations and I and and that's where it is on Disney Plus I've Seeing people who are new to the show say, hey, this show's bad with its continuity. Owen doesn't have a stone fist in the, the episodes that come after, and then he has it in Kingdom. But on the DVDs, it's in the right order. Right. So uh, we had made an agreement, in essence, with uh, both production and distribution that um, we were doing this tier system. Um, and any episode within the tiers and the tent poles between the tiers are the multi-parters. So this is anything between City of Stone and Avalon, that these episodes, um, I think there are eight of them, six of them, I can't remember, uh, should be able to air in any order. And in theory, we were supposed to be religious about that, and when push came to shove, we weren't. uh, Owen's arm turns to stone here, and um, and we had written this to be the 20th episode of the se- series uh, or season, um, the last episode of the tier, but it did not get ready as quickly. And we had made our promise that we would not, as we did with Enter Macbeth, hold up production. If I mean, hold up the release schedule not production, the release schedule by saying, you got to wait. This episode, I'm sorry, this episode was ready much sooner, probably because it was done by Walt Disney Animation Japan, um, much sooner than some of the other episodes. And so it was ready. We had a hold to fill from a a release date standpoint. And um, we had said, we're not going to do this again. As long as it fit within the tiers, we were going to do it. And what that meant is, is that, yeah, it's out of order. Now, there are times when, um, 
and the DVDs are a good example when uh, Disney has come to me or I've managed to talk to someone at Disney and say, hey, um, you, you can't use the airing order here. Um, you need to respect the, in, the order of intent, for lack of a better term. Um, and, and oftentimes Disney has said, oh, okay, sure. And the DVDs, the season two, volume one DVD was one example of that. Um, but, you know, most of the time, no one even thinks to check with me. Um, and they don't have to, there's no obligation for them to, I, I think I can help them out. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily even occur to them and they've got this airing order and I understand why the mistake happens. It's not like, how could you make this mistake? It's like, I totally understand how you could make this mistake, but it's still a mistake and it's so easy to fix. How about we fix it? And sometimes they're like, yeah. And sometimes they're like, um, you know, it, it's fine. It's fine. Don't you worry too much. Um, and they're not wrong. Uh, you know, I don't think it kills us that this episode is out of order. Um, the only thing that really signifies it is the stone hand. Um, it's not like there's a big emotional aspect of it or a big continuity aspect of it. Um, that makes the other episodes not work because this one aired early. Um, but there's no doubt it would be better if it were in the right order. It's just, again, we talked about it earlier. Uh, there are hills to die on and, th and this is not one of them. Um, and it was our error. I mean, ultimately it was too good a thing not to have Owen's hand turned to stone, but I had to know even then that that put us at risk. You know, that was something that, was specific to this episode that would be a long-term fundamental change. And it wasn't in a tent pole. It was in an episode between two tent poles. And that meant that we were at risk that it would air out of order. And it did. But it still so, turned out. Uh, well. Yeah. It still turned yeah, out. I don't well, think I... it's. Yeah. It doesn't break us. It's just be better if it had aired in the right order. That's life. I agree. And I think we hit just about everything on this episode. I think we had a great discussion about this. And um, this is coming out at the end of September. So let's begin to wrap things up. Anything to plug? Jen, do you have anything you want to plug? I am working on something. <laughs> and if those, those of you who follow me on, on Twitter, you probably saw me and my oldest daughter talking about a little collab that we're working on that is gargoyles related so um i'll have more on that as soon as we're we got more done on it we're gonna pimp it here and greg anything you want to plug no we're gonna plug september is end of september end of september all right well then by this time please don't make me do math greg do you know the answer already Eleven, what? four, and Halloween. Okay, so yes, coming up. So by this time, all of you people in the future you should have already <laughs> bought the first 10 issues of Gargoyles, the first three issues of Gargoyles Dark Ages, or I'll be very disappointed in you. Um, <laughs> and uh, You don't want to upset Dad. Right. Nope. Uh, and... Uh, 
And then coming in October, we have Gargoyles 11, Dark Ages 4, and at the end of the month, the Gargoyles Halloween special. Yay! <laughs> I cannot wait. All right. I want to thank you all for everything. Greg, thank you for everything you do. Jen, thank you for everything you do, especially. This show would not be the same without you. We know that for a fact. And um, it's been I'm, proven by I'm science. the plucky sidekick, that's all. <laughs> you're the co-host. You're the partner. You're not a sidekick. Trust me, you're not a sidekick. I suck without you. Trust me. I know that. It's been proven. All right. Um, and to our listeners, thank you. And tune in next time for Avalon Part 1. Nothing will ever be the same again, and we mean it. Thank you for listening to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast, powered by the Spidey Dude Radio Network, located at spidey-dude.com. If you like this show, then please listen to Spectacular Radio, based on the Spectacular Spider-Man animated series, which features some familiar voices. You can also find these great podcasts, Clone Saga Chronicles, Make Mine Mayday, Amazing Spider-Man Classics, The Sal Buscema Podcast, and Books of X. All of this and more on the Spidey Dude Radio Network. And please follow us on Twitter at From Eerie. That's From E-Y-R-I-E. And join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Network for more exclusive content. Thank you. Better than...